my soul will remain restless until it rests in you. These words confessed by St. Augustine have echoed across the centuries and remain a common thread to reverts and converts alike. These are the testimonies of those that have come to rest in the fullness of truth. This is Catholic Recon with your host, Eddie Trask. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Catholic Recon Testimonies from Reverts and Converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. This week's guest is David Fisher. Welcome, David. No, thanks, Eddie. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate you very much. Um, everyone, I want to start off by saying David is a, a, an author that came out with a book. This was April 16th, 2023. Mm-hmm. It's called Mercy in the Details, One Man's Journey Toward a Relationship with God and the Catholic Church. And I'm going to actually give you the, the breakdown of this book, the, the preview. How is a former Satanist turned occultist transformed into a fervent follower of Christ? David Fisher, a former drug addict, will have you on the edge of your seat as he candidly shares the amazing story of how he was ex- unexpectedly led into the Catholic faith by God's grace, mercy, and the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Mercy in the details shows that God can reach even the hardest of hearts in the most unexpected places. That is fantastic, David. I have not read it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I love reading the reviews. Um, Why don't we we start? Where should we start? Why don't you (laughs) tell me? Well, I gave you. Uh, I, I gave you that intro about your book. You you tell me where you would like to start today. That's the best place and most appropriate place to start. As always, at the beginning. Uh, that is appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but uh, um, well, I'm, I'm I live out here in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm originally from Southern West Virginia. I grew up in a very small town called Yukon, West Virginia, right outside of War, which is W A R, and it's a uh, it's really neat little town. It's an old coal mining town, so it was booming at one point in time. Is that like the southernmost town in West it Virginia? Is. Yes, it is. It's the southernmost point of West Virginia, and they are very proud of that fact. <laughs> As you enter into town, there's a huge sign that says, Welcome to War, most southern point of West Virginia. So um, I was uh, born in Bluefield, and just like Kansas City, we have Kansas City, Kansas, and a Kansas City, Missouri. Well, in West Virginia, there is a Bluefield, West Virginia, and a Bluefield, Virginia, because they're right on the same line. So, yes, we did separate from Virginia a whole long time ago. Um, I always thought it was interesting when I was working in fast food on the interstate. People would always ask if they were still in Virginia. They're like, no, we broke off a long time ago. But um, so I don't know if I had... I mean, I can't say that I had a childhood that was typical because I just had my childhood. So that's all I really know. My mom and dad, uh, they split when I was nine months old. And so my dad and me, we had a relationship, but it was more of the whole weekend relationship and visiting when I could. And he got me with him cut and things like that. But it was mainly me and my mom versus the world for a long time. Um, we would bounce back and forth from different trailers and places that we could stay. My grandmother and my grandfather took us in quite a few times. And then my mom met my first stepdad. Um, 
not to talk bad about her, but I have three stepfathers and one father. Um, so my first step, uh, um, yeah, my first stepfather um, seemed like a really nice guy. He was really, uh, really good to her, really good to me. He was just your typical good old boy from Southern West Virginia. And um, he would always come down. We played board games and things like that. My memory's kind of hazy because I was about around five, six, seven years old when that was happening. Well, they dated really not that long. And then they got married really quick. And um, when we moved in with him, it was actually a chicken coop that had got turned into a, um, a house. Like it was once a chicken coop that they had made walls and kind of put a floor down and it had a little pot-bellied stove in the middle of it and there were no doors so that way everybody got heat and that's where we lived in wow. and um as we're living with him everything's still fine but it took probably maybe two months i don't know time frame wise like i said i was really young uh until he got started getting abusive and um it's he did not like me he uh he did not like the fact that i came from another person i was uh, you know i had another father so um he uh he, he uh used to physically beat me just or he would emotionally um just beat me down a lot um until the point where it became really physical uh, with him and my mother and me and we got kicked out of the house and then we went back up to the house after we saw he had left and he had put poker holes into all my clothes and just burned everything. And it was really traumatic to be that young and have that happen. But we got out and um, for most of my early childhood, my grandmother and my grandfather were our saving grace. That was where we went when things got tough. My mom and papa were there to help us. So that's where we went and um, stayed there for a while. And I remember my mom was very leery about dating anybody anymore because, of course, the what she had went through and what I had went through. And until eventually she met uh, my second stepfather, who was by far the greatest man I met at that time. I, I thought he was amazing guy. Uh, he was the son of a preacher man and he uh, his father was the pastor he was blind pastor at the church that we went to um uh, mind you I, all this time i grew up in pentecostal holiness that was the, okay that's what i was going to ask you okay yeah i grew up in pentecostal holiness churches and if anyone knows southern west virginia we are very well known for snake handling churches but i didn't i've never attended one of those so you can't get me into that but we were the we were the typical stereotypical uh Pentecostal holiness. Anything you can think of Pentecostal, that's probably what we were. Um, so he was a real nice guy. He played music and just was very interesting. And um, he was very good to my mom. And um, so they started dating. And of course, this time she took her time with it. Um, and then they got married. And once they got married, everything was smooth sailing to the point where I even wanted him to adopt me. I was like, you know, I want you. You're like my dad. You know, I I know I have a dad, and my dad loves me. But you love me too. I did not quite understand the whole aspect of what I was asking. But um, that um, 
that changed when my grandfather, who was my refuge with me and my mom, he got cancer when I was 10 and he passed away. Um, as soon as he left, he was my protector. And um, as soon as he left this world, that's when my stepfather started showing his true colors. And he started becoming very abusive and very mentally abusive towards me and my mother. Um, he was very um, manipulative uh, to get what he wanted out of us. And he used fear to keep us in line, to keep us where we were. And I remember at a very young age, like I knew how to act around certain people. You were this way here, we're this way when we're uh, out and about. This is the persona we have to project. And <clears throat> so um, eventually it was, it was just, you know, dealing, just surviving. Uh, there were many times at that point where he was unemployed after that and didn't know where food was coming from. It was very scarce. I'm a big guy, but when I was little, I was real skinny as a rail. Just could, you know, good gush of wind take me right off somewhere. But um, I do remember there was one time that we had a, a broke window in our house, and I had no clue how it happened. I didn't. I don't recollect how it happened. But uh, make a long story short about that, he did. He physically abused me over this broken window. And he did so by propping a chair underneath the door um, and just, you know, bare skin whipping me with a belt. Um, he did that to the point where um, the next morning, you know, I, I don't know if, I, if it was summer. Or what, I know I didn't go to school for a few days. But um, the next morning when I woke up, I had to kind of slowly peel the uh, sheets off of my legs because they were stuck with blood. And I knew to do it quietly because if he got up, he would just make it worse. Um, then after that, he kind of, you know, said his apologies. He was doing his, you know, his normal routine his, you know, action, reflection, reaction. If you want to say he would just be like, oh, I didn't mean to do this. I'm going to be a good, I'm going to be a good parent now. Uh, we went to church one day and after church, sometimes his folks would uh, invite us up to go eat uh, lunch. So we're sitting down, we're eating lunch and he's like, you know, what? we really need to listen to some gospel music, which was nothing out of the ordinary. That's what we did. Sometimes we, you know, you just listen to gospel music or you just talk one of the two. Um, so he goes over and he puts a tape in and it starts playing and, you know, a minute, so goes by and there's nothing there's like no music and we're like well what did, what in the heck did you put in and then all of a sudden you could hear me screaming and he had audio taped the whipping that he had given me with the belt and was playing it at lunch and that was the last straw of that one so my mom left and that was it we were done um but because of that i grew a real hatred towards my mother I blamed her a lot for what she did not realizing that she was suffering the same abuse I was on a level that I didn't know because I wasn't around all the time but I I blamed her for not getting me out of that situation so my teenage years took a turn for the worse um I tried so hard to be the guy who loved Jesus and wanted to be the good Pentecostal son and I, I just couldn't I couldn't wrap my hand around or my head around how a God could love me so much 
And then, yet, I have been so abused, just abused as a child. Where was he? Where was this guy? Well, he's there was the answer. And that just, it hurt my feelings that he was there, but nothing was ever done. And so I questioned that when I was a teenager. And so I got into a whole lot of trouble with my mom. <laughs> I started doing things I wasn't supposed to do. Started getting into a lot of the heavy metal scene. Got into the death metal music scene. Started listening to a lot of Marilyn Manson, Cannibal Corpse, um, Cradle of Filth, just really hardcore satanic music. And um, it got to the point where my mom was just like, you know, I can't deal with you. I'm the only, I was the only child. And um, at that point in time, my dad was living in North Carolina, helping another minister, Pentecostal minister in his ministry. And so I was like, well, I'm going to go live with my dad. And so I went to North Carolina. I lived with him for a little bit, thinking it was going to be awesome. It's going to be a little fun games. No, not really. It, it felt like a prison. Uh, I love my dad. We've made amends over the years and everything like that. And I'm not going to sit here and bash my dad because I really wasn't the greatest son in the world for him to have. I was very against the world. I was against his religion completely. Um, but there was still a spark. And when I was living with him, I tried to become Christian again. And I was told by a minister that I would meet God in three days. Um, and I'm just a young kid. And I have been praying about this. God, I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to know who you are. And this pastor had told me, he's like, you've been praying about this for so long. And no one had told him this. And he just was telling me that I'd prayed about this. Maybe my parents had mentioned something, but I had not to my recollection. And he was like, in three days, you're going to see God. And I was stoked. I was like, all right, I get to meet the man. I get to meet God. This is what I wanted. I want to meet God. Well, the third day came and nothing happened. And as soon as that did, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, how old How old are you at this moment? At this point in time, I was 15. Okay. And um, that was when I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I can't keep doing this. I can't keep going back to this religious atmosphere and being lied to. I can't do it. So I got worse. It got 10 times worse after I'd given my heart to God and I can't turn back away from him. It was, you know, like they said in the Bible, it was just the floodgates were open. And so I started to get into more heavy stuff. I started doing drugs and most people were like, you know, you what marijuana is the gateway drug. Well, mine was cigarettes. That's what I started with smoking like a freight train. And then that would ended up with me, you know, not very proud of this, but, you know, you had your Elmer's glue and stuff like that. That was, I mean, I'm a 90s kid, so everything was toxic around us. Everything was just, anything you touched, you had the slight chance of becoming radioactive. Do you understand this? So, <laughs> but I just started getting into drugs and um, hot became a big thing that I just smoked all the time. And I worked at a subway and I would smoke pot in the bathroom, not realizing that I was smelling up the whole subway. And I was, I just did not care. I did not care one bit. I started stealing stuff from school. I started uh, 
abusing the animals. Uh, I started trying to put uh, lead shavings into dogs' food that was at the house. I hit the dog one time across the back of the head with a mug and knocked it clean out. I thought I killed it and didn't know how I was going to explain the dog was dead. Um, so I was just a mess. I was a horrible mess. And during this time that I'm going through all this down there, uh, my mom meets another man and his name was Sal. And they met through a pen pal service, kind of like, you know, you know, um, Catholic uh, dating services and places like that. But back then it was just, you wrote letters. It was a list of people with their addresses and you just wrote back and forth to each other until you connected. And so they did, they clicked. He lived up in Jersey. She was still in West Virginia. And um, they wrote back and forth and stuff and really hit it off. And he came down and met her very, very polite man. I was very, very skeptical. But he was he seemed to be very nice. But I knew at that age that man there was masks people wore. You could be nice one second and turn it, you know, Jekyll and Hyde was not anything out of my vocabulary. And I remember I was in North Carolina and my mom called me and told me she was getting married to him. And I broke down. Because here I am in North Carolina, I can't protect my mom. And my mom's getting married to a man. And I've seen what two men have done to her already. And I can't be there. I'm a big guy now. I'm a big dude. I can take care of my mom. I went, and I called my grandmother. And she, uh, I was just bawling. And I was like, Mama, is he good? She was like, Dave, I'm going to tell you the truth. You know, I'm never going to lie to you. There ain't no man in this world loves your mother as much as Sal loves that woman. She ain't got nothing to worry about, sweetheart. And I didn't. I come to realize that that was the, one of the greatest men I could have ever had in my life. He was a Catholic man, too. And that was my first introduction to Catholicism. I didn't know... Growing up in a Pentecostal church, I'm pretty sure you know about this, and I'm not trying to be vulgar or anything, but we were always taught it was the whore of Babylon. That's what the Catholic church was. I didn't even know it was called the Catholic church. I thought it was just called the whore of Babylon. I was like, okay, it's a strip club or something. I don't know what it is, but that's what it was called. And you do not go around those people. So I got those kind of emotions steering up. I'm like, oh, my Lord, he's Catholic. She's done went. She's done went bonkers. She's now with a Catholic guy. What is going on? So when I first met him, I was very, very apprehensive. I did not want to talk to him. I shied away from him. You know, I tried to act like the Billy bad boy that was just going to come around and do whatever he wanted to do. And instead of him being aggressive with me that I was so used to with men, he was the most patient man I'd ever met in my life. And he loved me. And I he had no reason to. And he did. He loved me. And I, I know that now. At the time, I couldn't see it. But he loved me enough to show patience. And he started talking to me about his writings. I was like, well, I write. I like to write. And he was like, well, what do you write? And he was like, well, I've, you know, I've published a few screenplays here and there, and I write poetry. 
that was it for me because you know being the stoner I was at that time I was into the doors and I got into poetry so I was writing poetry like crazy and so we just started talking about poetry and connected on that level about poetry and writing and so I kind of broke down a little bit and let him in a little bit and that's just the way it went for uh, to about when I graduated uh when I did that it was kind of like well what are you going to do now David you know, you kind of partied your way through high school. Now, what are you going to do? So I tried to go into the army. I was two pounds overweight and they wouldn't take me. <laughs> so I went and went to my last way in. I was two pounds overweight and they said, no, you can't go. So I was like, well, there goes the military. I'm not giving you guys another shot. So then I just went around doing the same old crazy stuff. And at this time, like right around when I hit 16, about 17, it got really bad. 18 is when I started getting really deep into Satanism. I'd met a guy at the high school because my dad and us had moved back from North Carolina up to West Virginia. And I moved to a different area of town where I went to another high school. And I met this guy at that high school. And him and a few other people were really deep into Satanism. And um, I just did it because I wanted to peeve my folks off I just wanted to make them mad and so eventually they were like well do you want to be part of this do you want to be a part of us um you have to you know we have to make a pact that you're going to make a pact with the devil you're going to make a pact with us and we do whatever we can to destroy whatever we can destroy in our way anything we do everything we want we want nothing but chaos and I was like yeah that sounds good to me that's what I want too I want nothing but chaos so we did this little ritual, and then after that, um, I remember telling people that I was a Satanist. I was proud of it. I wanted to tell every, the whole world I was a Satanist, and I almost got beat up because of it. And my buddy and him, and these people who brought me in, they were like, you do not talk about this. And I'm like, you want more people? He was like, mm, that's not how it works. We don't want them. They want us. They come to us. We don't go to them. And I was like, okay. I was like, he's like, do you remember when you came in? I was like, yeah. He was like, you came to us. We didn't bring you in. You brought yourself in. So it was one of those kind of, I understand now it's a manipulation tool. I didn't tell you to worship Satan. Yeah. You did it on your own. It wasn't me. It's one of those, I'm going to play the idiot cards. Um. So I was deep into the Satanism stuff. Marilyn For how Man long? How long was that going on? I finally got out of it when I was about 22. And it was tough. Because to get I, out? Yeah, it was very tough to get out. Because once you're out, you're a target to them. You're a threat. You were somebody who were on the inside, knew what they were doing, knew what they talked about, knew all this stuff. Even it was low-key Southern West Virginia, and it was still treated as you are the enemy now. And it was, to be perfectly honest, anyone who's in Satanism and then gets out the Satanism, from my experience, is a bigger target than a Christian. Because now you know the inside, and then you have left. And they don't want that known to anyone. It's very secretive. That It's just hush-hush. And that's how you can really tell if it's really what it says it is. is if they're going around blabbering about it or how you see on TV and they're doing all these fantastic things and trying to 
have you know people look at them those that's kitty satanists i don't even look at them as even being i mean they're evil they're doing evil stuff but the ones you have to worry about are the ones that don't talk about it. Those are the Satanists that are really out there trying their best to destroy anything good. Now, if you can speak to this, because you mentioned it earlier, death metal. How big of a part was that? I don't, you know, I used to be in that scene a little bit. All right. And I would, if I knew that a band was satanic, I would avoid them as much as possible. There was something in me that didn't want to do that. But in that, in that, whatever you want to call it in that group was that a big part of the culture oh yeah it was a huge part of it um and not just like Marilyn manson i, I don't want to just he's just one of the names yeah that just the name that came to your mind yeah he was the guy that was big during the time when we were into all of this that was the, that was i would say my first inspiration to start reading like Anton LaVey and stuff like that got it but the death death metal like really black like Norwegian yeah. death metal um we would listen to it during rituals that's what we did and it was the chaos of it the loudness the screaming of it it was just I can't really describe what a religion a ritual is like with death metal it just gives it a mood it. that is completely dark. And like, I know one time we were doing just stupid stuff and trying to do this little ritual that was in a book and we're listening to death metal. And then I remember looking up and I could see nothing. It was just completely black around us. And we weren't really in a dark, dark place. But it was dark, very, very dark. Um, I don't hit much on this in my book just because if I told every little thing that I went through in my life, um, it would have been, you know, as thick as Stephen King's it. <laughs> it would have been huge. So but no, no, no. And I get I get it. You know, we can't cover everything, but there's no doubt that people will you know this will resonate with certain people that may even be for all i know in the midst of it but when you speak of the the such darkness in that in those moments let's say mm -hmm. were you aware did you feel comfortable in those environments and you just said oh wow i've gone numb were you guys on drugs during a lot of this stuff or drinking yeah we were drinking and doing a lot of drugs um and um a lot of pills. I was doing a whole lot of opiates, um, a lot of painkillers. Uh, that just seemed to be what was the easiest for us to get our hands on. I was, uh, you know, I lived in West Virginia when the um, oxycotton just was flooded into Southern West Virginia. And it was just, everybody had them. The doctors were writing scripts for hangnails. Everybody could get a script for oxycotton. So it was everywhere. And, but to answer your question, while we were doing it, it wasn't comfortable, but it wasn't supposed to be comfortable. It was, that was the understanding. It's supposed to hurt. It's not supposed to make you feel all giddy inside. You are supposed to feel the darkness. And in a way it felt when you, 
when it got to that point, it was almost like it's uncomfortable and that feels empowering. And that makes it hard to get away from because you, after having the life that I had lived up until that time and having no power, and then I'm giving over to this dark force. It's making me uncomfortable. I know how to be uncomfortable. I've been uncomfortable my Your entire life. life. Yep. And so, but now it's empowering me. It's telling me to go out there and do stuff. And I'm doing it. And I'm like doing things to women and just manipulating them. And it's working. And I can do and say what I want to. It's for a kid like me that had went through all that. It was like a powder keg. Like It was just insane for me I, I it was it was a drug in, in and of itself got it but um eventually which i hate to say i wish i could say it was god that got me out of it but um it was not it was different drugs i started dr taking a lot more of um party drugs started taking a lot of ecstasy started taking a lot of acid eating a lot of shrooms and that kind of brought me out, you know, I saw the pretty colors and I was like, okay, the world that's dark is not so wonderful anymore. I don't want to be a part of this no more, but I'm going to go to this wonderful land of make-believe where unicorns are, you know, sliding down rainbows. And I'm going to, I'm just going to deal with that. because That I is so fascinating. I've never heard anything like that. So you were in the midst of that. You're like, I see color through right. these, through these drugs. Right. And you're starting to come out uh, or you, you make like a very, yeah, I was just, just draw like, a line and you say, I'm whatever, 22, you said at the time. I was about 21 at that time. And I also had been with uh, a couple of buddies of mine that had been studying Wicca and kind of bounced back and forth with that too. I also revisited that later on in life and it was all this earth. And then eventually I was just like, you know, I'm done with you Satanist. I'm done with you Wiccans. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I don't believe in anything. Let me eat my drugs and be in peace. That's all I wanted to do was just to get hot and be happy. And I wasn't at home anymore. And I was on my own. And, you know, backing up a, a little bit before that, when I first got to college, I completely ruined car up college like my my major was partying and so um when I very first got to my dorm room and I sat down and my dad said bye it was the craziest feeling I was sitting there I was like I am on my own and I can do anything I want and no one can stop me now it's not going home back I'm, I'm on my own like this is me doing anything so it was very bad until eventually it ended up to where I was, you know, 170 pounds soaking wet. I, um, uh, you know, crashing on people's couches. I was living out of boxes and backpacks. And um, I remember eventually it was just my friends got tired of that. They got tired of me mooching off of them because I had not only was I was the kid that, you know, I was the fun guy at the party. But I was also this person who had a personality due to what had happened to him as a child that everybody owed him something. Everybody needed to cater to me because poor, poor David, poor David had a bad life when he was younger and I manipulated people with that. I took advantage of people that were really my good friends. You know, I, I, there's some of them, I, I, I'm by the grace of God, they still talk to me because I used them so much. And I can only see it, you know, now. Yeah. 
but uh, at the time it was just like oh i was even caught up into my own world of sadness i'm like oh please everybody help me eventually they're like we can't do it and so you know i'm wandering around campus nowhere to go nothing to do strung out and so i call up my aunt and she's like you know you've stolen from us you've taken things from us you've made our lives chaotic and she was like, I don't know if I can trust to help you. And I'm, I, I said, you know, you know, Debbie, I understand all that, but I had nowhere else to go. And she kind of sighed real deep and she was like, okay, I'll pick you up. And it just took her, that one person, to say, I'm going to help you. That kind of got me going on a right track. So I went to her house and she basically kept everyone away from me while I was going through my withdrawals and having to drink water. I'm, and if anybody's been on drugs and has tried to come clean, they understand the, the, the depression point of withdrawal. It's just everything makes you sad. Everything. There's nothing you will cry at the drop of a hat. And I remember sitting with her and I just started bawling and she kind of just had me lay on her lap and she just Rub my head. She was like, what's the matter, David? And I, I thought, I was like, you know what, Aunt Debbie? I'm just, I'm tired of being a nobody. I'm just tired of being nobody. You know, just want, just floating through life. I'm tired of being a nobody. And she was like, you'll get there, Dave. You'll get there. And so eventually I got clean enough to where she was like, okay, now you got a good job or you got to go do something. You can't just mooch off of us. So I'd pretty much um, worked at every job that was around there and quit it as soon as I got a paycheck to buy my drugs with. Oh, so I didn't really have many options. So I went down trying to go into the Air Force. Um, the Air Force guys were at a high school somewhere in the area. Navy guy popped his hat out and was like, can I help you? And I was like, well, I guess I'm a sailor. And he was like, okay, well, come on in. Let's get to talking. And of course, the Marine guy came in and he's like, no, you don't want to be a sailor. You want to come and be a Marine. And I'm like, hold up, buddy. I'm like, you all have to do three pull-ups before you go to boot camp. I break a sweat after thinking of one. I cannot go to Marine boot camp. There is no way that this guy is going to make Marine boot camp. And he was like, all right. He's like, at least you're honest. <laughs> so... They did all the initial ASVAB and all the paperwork and stuff like that. Well, then I had to take a um, urinalysis, urinalysis, a urine test. And um, when I did, I came back and they all started huddling around my test, which I thought was really odd. I'm like, why is everybody huddled around something I just peed on? I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> this is very strange. The senior chief of the recruiting station took a picture of it. And I'm like, this is getting nuts. What's up? I'm like, what is it? They were like, you are the very first person that has ever walked in here and has tested positive for every drug we test for. I'm like, what are you talking about? And they were like, you just pop positive for every drug that we test for. You have it all in your system. It's like, we can't send you to the maps right now. You will fail a urinalysis and they will kick you out. So it took me a month to get my system clean. And I mean, that was me just pounding water, doing exercises, going to the recruiting station, helping them out. Because they knew that a month to an addict is hard. If I didn't have something to do down there with them, keeping my mind on things, 
I was going to go back to using. I was going to do something. At that point in time, I could buy alcohol. So it was like, I can go get something to get me, get a buzz going. So they kept me busy. And then eventually I went into the Navy. I got in the Navy, went through all my boot camp stuff, which I thought I was going to die when I first got there. Uh, my first four weeks after you get two phone calls back home. My first phone call, I couldn't talk because I was crying. Um, I could not make a sentence because all I was doing was bawling my eyes out going, this is the most horrible mistake I ever made in my life. <laughs> and then at, by the, my second phone call, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is easy. I can do this all day long. So uh, I went in, to my A school in Pensacola, and uh, I went in as undesignated so it could get me in quicker. And what undesignated means is that I didn't go in with a rate. I went in with no job. And then what I would do is go to different duty stations, go, okay, this is the job I like. And then I would take a test and then I would be that rate if I made striker, which, which is, you know, if I would have made the enough points on the test to be that rate. <laughs> so, um, so our A school was a month long. And it's basically how to direct traffic, you know, how to direct aircraft to and fro, how to put out fires. It's basically just basic stuff you needed to know. And then I'd put down all overseas, all duty stations overseas, because here I am in this, I'm a landlocked hillbilly. And I have no, have never seen anywhere outside of the United States, but let alone the East Coast. I'd only been up and down the East Coast. So here I was, I was like, I want to go everywhere that's overseas. I want to be on a ship. I want to be out to sea. That's why I became an, a sailor. And my uh, uh, my instructor at the time, he was like, okay, you're going to get it. You know, nobody wants what you put down. And he's like, you're going to hate it. He's like, once you get done with that sea rotation, you'll be so glad to get away from it. <laughs> I was like, but I would at least want to experience it. Well, then I got my orders back and I went to Jacksonville, Florida, and I was working on aircraft that never touches a ship. So I was not overseas, <laughs> was not on a ship, and I was not had no intentions of going to a ship within those next two years. And so I was bummed, but I went in there and I did what I had to do. And eventually uh, they made me a supervisor of... Um, the it's called the line shack which is just a, a department that's um, responsible for launch and recovery of aircraft and maintenance and taking care of the aircraft to make sure it's chained down to the um in the padlocks on the uh, tarmac make you know just taking it like the air crew and so um so uh, i did that for a while and i think it was just because i was older than everybody Everybody else was like 18, 19 years old, and I was 23 when I got there. So I was like, okay, well, it's just because I'm older. They think I'm more mature and all this other stuff. I was like, they don't know me very well. But, you know, I learned at that point in time that nine times out of ten, it's Navy and Marines. I can't really speak too highly, of Mar like, like highly that I know this about Marines because I wasn't in it, but I had buddies in there. Those are the two branches for people who are, who need help getting off a of dope. <laughs> so those are usually the two branches people go to. Um, I know that I met a lot of recovering uh, drug addicts in the Navy. Wow. So, um, but, you know, uh, 
I, I tell everybody it, it just takes one little thing to push you back over the edge. And they kept making me do more and more things while I was the supervisor. And I just got completely overwhelmed. Like I could not keep up. So here I am, young man, I have money. I don't have any responsibilities to speak of. And there's cocaine everywhere in Florida where we were. And I know how to sniff that out because I'm used to sniffing out drugs. I know sure. where to go look. I know who to look at and go, yep, they could probably tell me where to go. And so I I fell off the wagon and started doing coke while I was in the military. And that's a very, very scary place to be doing drugs because, you know, you get, you know, you take a urinalysis and if you pos uh, test positive, that's you go to the brig and then you're how do you i have to ask you how do you function this is something because i i've not heard enough about that drug over the years right um how do you function well, <laughs> when me, are you doing it it's only at night or were you like well i was, worked overnight oh you worked overnight okay yeah. so during the day so no i would do it at work oh god it's okay doing it on the base yeah. <laughs> and uh, um for me you know, sometimes the cocaine makes people really speedy and they're, they, you know, they can't do nothing because they can't focus. It's complete opposite for me. I had laser beam focus when I was on cocaine. I got two accommodations from the captain from the work I did while I was on cocaine because I was dialed in and they just thought I was a hard worker. Little did they know I was coked out of my mind. And it's only by the grace of God that I even made it to where I didn't. Cause I had buddies that were doing it with me and they got dishonorably discharged. They got caught. Well, how and long were you there? How long were you doing it? And then at what age were you? I was 23 oh. when I got there. I was about 24 when I started and I left there about when I was 24, almost 25. Okay. And so I didn't do it for very long. It was probably about six or eight months that I got into the bender of it. And then I think, because they saw that I was such a hard worker. I had some people that were batting for me and they sent me to another duty station away from all those people and everything and was trying to give me a fresh start. And it did, it worked. I didn't touch it anymore once I got over there. And then I met a girl and usually meeting girls <laughs> will help you sober up, especially if they're not the ones that are doing uh, drugs. So she was not a druggie. Um, she did drink. So I was like, okay, that works for me. I can... I can swig one back or two ever so often, often and not do the drugs. And um, she, uh, we ended up getting married. Um, I stayed in the military and she got out. And my plan was to stay in the Navy for forever. I was like, you know, I'm going to retire out of the Navy. Um, well, one day uh, we did eventually had a daughter. And I always tell people I wish I could say I was lifting a very large engine off of somebody trying to do something heroic, but I bent over to pick up one of my daughter's blankets and stood up and herniated three discs in my back and then found that I had degenerative disc disease. And they were like, well, we can't cure that. So you have to get medically discharged. So that dream was gone. So we moved, we had a couple of options, you know, well, three, stay in Florida, Moved to West Virginia or moved to where she's from out in Kansas. Um, 
So we moved out to Kansas. I'd never been that far west before. And so I was like, might as well. I, you know, I'm, I'd like to see it. I'd like to know what it's like to live out in the Midwest. Um, and then it just, you know, I don't go into too much detail, even in my book, about our relationship and our marriage, because it takes two to make it work. And it takes two that can make it just go sour. I can only talk about the part that I had in it. And I was a, I was not a good husband to her. Um, I used her happiness for my happiness. And if that makes any sense, I am. Yeah, it does. She, uh, she was my drug. And, you know, all this drug use that I was doing was to fill in a hole that I didn't want to fill with my, my own self-esteem. So I used her as that new drug to be, and didn't want to be reciprocal with that happiness. And it ends when that, and I was devastated because at that point in time, I couldn't receive, you know, what, what, what I was doing. And I thought, you know, I'm still playing the poor David part. And, but I had a huge part in our relationship ending because I wanted her to make me happy. And I didn't care if she was happy. As long as I was happy, everybody should have been happy. And that's not what makes a marriage work. It's not anywhere near what makes marriage work. We make really good friends. We're good friends now, but no, I mean, we were horrible <laughs> together married, but we have three beautiful daughters together. And so we were co-parenting. Um, but once she and I split up, you know, here I am out in the Midwest. I have no family uh, except for my kids. Um, and I'm like, uh, I just get super depressed. And I'm, you know, at this point in time, I'm still using drugs, but I'm using painkillers legally. The VA has given me painkillers for my back. I've had a surgery done. Um, the VA's pain management was hydrocodone and morphine. Oh, so I was yeah. on morphine and hydrocodone every day. And of course, I was abusing that too, because that's all I knew how to do was abuse drugs and snorting pills and just doing all of just numbing as myself as much as I could, which and is so another... Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish. I'm sorry. There's another thing that will strain a relationship really quick, especially when we have children and I'm over here nodding off off of painkillers and she's got to pick up the pieces and take care of all the kids stuff and her stuff and the house stuff and everything else. It's just it's not it wasn't fair to her. So I just want to. So when you say abusing it, they would say as needed. And then you just say, OK, I think I need it every day. And then it becomes I need it twice a day. Or how does that yeah. Well, it basically became used. I had a time frame that I was supposed to use it at, and I stuck to it a little bit. And some days I'd be like, I don't need it, this, this, and this. And it would, I would sit there and accumulate. And instead of getting rid of it and giving it back to them, I you just binge later. And so I binged later on. And so I'm doing this after we got divorced, or well, at that point in time, separated. And I'm doing it constantly. I don't know how I didn't die. I, have, I was just snorting pills one right after another. And to be honest, I wanted to die. I thought, why I live? I'm just, I know I have children. I know I'm their dad and I know I love them, but they'd be better off without me. I'm just an ex-junkie who can't hold it together. Why, their mother's way more capable than me. 
Well, a buddy of mine that I worked with, he saw that, that I was getting in those depressive states and just kind of with just going in and not coming out and not being a part of the group anymore or my job or anything. And he was like, you know, have you ever heard of meditation? And I was like, well, you know, I've tried a few times, I guess, but uh, I was like, I, I was no good at it. And he was like, have you heard of Buddhism? And I was like, I know the Dalai Lama, but that's about it. That's the only name drop I got for you. because That's all. That's all I know. I know the Dalai Lama. That's it. I couldn't tell you anything about him. I just know his name and that he's Buddhist. He's like, you know what? I'm going to bring you some books and I'm going to bring you a mala, which is like the prayer beads. And he's like, I want you to read through them and start learning how to meditate. And he's like, if you got any questions, I'm always here. So I started doing that. And at first, it was just really super difficult because I was like, I have no clue what these people are saying. They're talking in hieroglyphics. I have no clue. They're higher than I had ever been. I don't know. I don't know what dope they're taking, but I don't understand them. I don't know what they're saying. This is so far above me. I have no clue. So I wrote him or not wrote him, but talked to him one day. And I was like, where can I go to meet somebody in person that can help me with this meditation thing? And then he gave me some suggestions and I went to one place and it was, it was okay. But I thought that if I breathed too hard, somebody was going to smack me upside my head. So I was like, no, I can't go to this place because I'm just learning how to do this and I breathe heavy. So it's not, this isn't good. <laughs> so I went to uh, I went to another place that was a Tibetan Buddhist group, and I practiced with them for a while and met the teacher there and started talking with him and learning a lot more about meditation and the ways of trying to just calm yourself down and be there and just be where you were. And the only thing I could never get was the sitting on the cushions. I could never do it because my legs was always going numb, but I always thought that I had to push through that, so I just kept doing it. And it was always uncomfortable and it always distracted me from my meditation, but I was still just trying. And so eventually I was like talking to him. I was like, well, where else is around here? Is there Buddhist? And he was like, well, there's this place right down the street. You should go check them out. So I went down there and talked to their teacher and she, um, she was like, you should practice with us. So I ended up practicing with them for um, about three years. And this is all part of my formation of becoming a Buddhist monk. Um, I just didn't know at that point in time it was leading to becoming a Buddhist monk. I knew it was an idea of my head that I wanted to do it. And so me and her had had a lot of deep conversations and I'd went on retreats with her. We did a four day silent retreat together where there was just absolutely no speaking for four days. And so she knew my situation pretty well because I'm, I'm the type of person, I'm an open book. I don't care to tell you things, even if it's stuff you probably don't want to know. <laughs> it's, it's, it does not bother me to tell anybody anything. Um, and I was talking to her and she knew that I wanted to become a monk at this point in time. And I'd started expressing more after I'd went and heard the Dalai Lama give a speech in uh, uh, near St. Louis in the, at the Yum Center. and. Um, so she was like, you know, in our our group, we don't have a formation where you become a monk. She's like, there is somebody I know that has he, that ability. He can do that. And she was like, I'm actually studying with them right now. You should come with me and learn. And I was, 
they were Zen Buddhists. And that first time that I ever went was a Zen Buddhist group. So I told her, I was like, you know, my history with Zen Buddhism, they scare the daylights out of me. They are too serious. I can't do this. No. And she was like, no, just come shut up and come on with me. Just suck it up and just let's go. So I went with her, went to this Zen Buddha. It was like night and day. This guy was just very, um, very friendly. He was laughing. He was telling us different ways to sit. We could sit in chairs. I was like, I can sit in a chair. I was like, this is amazing. Was, <laughs> it, was, it, uh, was it Phil Jackson by chance? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> But, uh, so I was like I think I found my place so I went up to him after the very first practice like how can I be a monk like you all he's like you know hold up buddy you can't just go diving into it it's like I've been practicing Buddhism for three years now I think I can do this he was like I know but I got to get to know you before I let you into the group because you know you, what you do affects all of us so we're all kind of you know, on one another, we feed off of one another uh, through our practice. And I was like, for a lack of a better description, but uh, so I was like, okay. So I went with them and sat with them at their abbey, uh, six o'clock in the morning, every day before I went to work, did my liturgy with them as they did a liturgy morning and evening um, to the point where eventually they gave me a book to where I could do the uh, evening part at home by myself. And then I just kept talking to him and kept talking to him until eventually, I guess he got tired of hearing me. And he was like, I'm going to Vietnam for a month. I want you to write me a page, just one page, telling me why you want to be a monk while I'm gone. When I come back, I'll read it and I'll let you know if you can be one. It took me that month to write it because the only thing I could think of was because I want to. <laughs> and, and I was like, well, I don't think that's going to cut it. I don't think that's what he wants. So one day I just sat down and I wrote and was honest with him. And he came back and he read it and he was like, all right, you need to get your robes here, do this, 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 and this. And that led me down my path of going into being a Buddhist monk. And what year was that? Oh, couldn't tell you without looking at my certificate. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. I've only been Catholic for three years, so it was okay. That. So, okay, and you were but, a monk for, for quite a while? I was. Uh, the whole process of becoming a monk from like when I began to when I stopped uh, was six years. Okay. Uh, so I counted all as the formation. They all counted it all as the formation for me entering in. So that's just... Uh, the buildup to it was formation. So it. it was like the uh, postulate stage of going into uh, like a religious life in Catholicism. And so I remember whenever eventually we had to, before we became fully professed, we were instructed that we had to take a CPE course and uh, it's clinical pastoral education. And I didn't think I was going to be able to get in because I'll, I, at that point in time, I'd had an associate's degree. I had uh, went to online college and got one in communications. And I was like, all I have is an associate's degree. And he was like, well, no, you don't. You have an equivalence of a master's degree. And I was like, well, how does that work? He was like, all your formation and everything you've done in Buddhism is an equivalency to a master's degree. I just don't have an accreditation to give you a certificate that says that you're you have a master's in philosophy. Sure. 
And I was like, okay. So I went to that, did my internship, did, uh, didn't think much about anything else. I thought I was just going to do that year and be gone. But it ended up that was a lot of group therapy work for me. And I started working on things that I thought Buddhism had taken care of. And I started really opening up to these people that I was meeting and being honest the way with my past was. And then having stuff questioned about my past and talking about it and being like having to confront those demons, having to look at them instead of running away from them, which I knew how to run real good. I did not know how to sit and talk to them. I didn't know how to sit and face them. And so it became very therapeutic for me to be with the, the CPE group. So I put in for my residency and I got, I got chosen to do a residency. And um, then, um, you know, during my um, last part of my internship, after knowing that I'd gotten my residency and everything, my stepdad, Sal, that I had talked about earlier, he um he got sick. He got cancer. Um, and he had had cancer before, but it was also he had diabetes really bad and his kidney shut down. Dang. And so it was at that point it was he was gonna have to have dialysis to live. And he had been fighting illnesses for so long. He's like, you know, I'm just ready to go home. And my mom and we were talking, I was like, well, I guess, you know, just take him home and let him rest. She was like, no, David, he's ready to go home. He's ready to go to heaven. He's, he's ready to go. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and so he talked to me on the phone for the last time and told me, you know, David, all I want you to do is go to church. He's like, I don't care where you go. Just go to a church, please. He's like, I'm going to heaven. I want you to come. He's like, I want you to be there with me for eternity where we'll never have to say goodbye again, David. It's like, please go to church, please. It's like, I can't do that. And it broke my heart to tell him that I couldn't do that because I could. I thought that being a Buddhist, I had gotten to a point in my life where God would leave me alone. I was compassionate. I was loving. I wasn't a Satanist. God Let's just, you be there, me be here, and we be on good terms. I'm not going to serve you, but I'm not going to try to destroy the world that you created. I acknowledge who you are, but I don't want, I'm going to do my good thing over here. And um, so my mom, when they, they went to hospice, and I flew out there to be with them. And at this point in time, it was no, it, me and him had an amazing relationship um, to the point where his very last words to me when I saw him at the hospice was he said, he put out his arms and he said, there's my boy. And he, I was his son. He wanted me to let, he couldn't have kids of his own, but he was my stepdad, but he was my dad in his eyes. Wow. And so I stayed there overnight. Next morning, they wash him up and get him all clean. And they're like, he's going to go anytime soon. And so they roll him on his side just to make him more comfortable. And I'm sitting in the chair while my mom and my aunt are sitting with him. 
and I hear him take this, this really big raspy breath. And then I hear him just like a sigh of relief. And then he was gone. And so I got on the phone, went outside. I called my uh, ex-wife so she could let my kids know, you know, your papa is gone. And when I did that, this is the part I always tell people I'm going to sound like I'm completely nuts. But I felt like there were people walking past me. And there was no one around. It was just me. There's no wind blowing. It wasn't crazy. The rustling of nothing. It was just, it felt like people were walking by me. And I was like, what? And I couldn't concentrate on my phone call. I'm like, you know, I'm like, let me call you back. I have to go back to the room. And she was like, okay, I understand. Just give me a call. Let me know, you know, when you're on the road and all this stuff. And, you know, we'll talk to your mom and things like that. I was like, okay. So, so I'm still feeling these people walking by me and I'm walking slowly to Sal's room and I get to the door and I had been to parties where it was just wall to wall people and just elbow to elbow. And that's what it felt like in the room. And there was only three people in it. <laughs> and I felt claustrophobic. Like there were so many people in that room and I was getting antsy. I was like, I don't know what to do. I, I was freaking out. I was like, this is not normal. I thought I was going crazy. And as soon as I felt, I felt that, I looked over at my dad and I don't, it, I know it don't make sense, but I didn't feel it with my, I felt it with my heart. I saw it with my heart. Two hands come down and grasp my dad like water being cupped and going up. And then everything went away. And that was it. Holy cow. Man. It was only three people in that room. And I just stood there. I had nothing. I couldn't speak. I didn't know what was going on. I had no clue what had just happened. All I know is that I had experienced something. And I had no words for it, what I had just experienced. None. And it took me a while to even tell my mom about it. But uh, we went and did the funeral. We did all we needed to do. And then I went back home and I told my Zen master, my Zen teacher, what had happened. And he was like, you know, he knew me really well by that point in time. He was like, you know, you're, you've got a great imagination, David. You're very, very good imaginative. You know, when it comes to doing certain meditations where you have to visualize things, he's like, I know you've got that down pat because you have a good imagination. It's like, that's what this was. It was your grieving process. It was your imagination working with the grieving process to help you cope with your dad dying uh, or stepdad dying. But no, that's not what it was. It's like, there's no way that I made that up. It's like, I could not have made that up. There's nothing. I know about closing my eyes and visualizing things and actually seeing pictures. This was not me. It was something was touching me not me it was from out going in not inward going out and, and he was like well if you feel that way meditate on it he's like go ahead and, you know meditate on it see where it leads you so i meditated on it and one thing the buddhism i'm not a very big fan of it after i got out of it i can and you can read about all that in my book i talk about that but um it really did teach me how to embrace silence how to be how to be in the silence 
how not to, you know, sometimes it might be for five minutes, sometimes it might even be an hour in complete silence, but it taught me how to be comfortable in it and how not to run from it and to learn in the silence. And so I would meditate in silence on this and just that one question, what was that? What was that? And I could, and just nothing was coming to me. I'm I'm doing mantras later on. I'm trying my best. Buddha, please tell me what is happening. What is going on? Boop, no answers. It was nothing. He was not speaking to me. I didn't hear anything. So I told my mom, I was like, mom, maybe I should go to church. Because at that point in time, she had come out. I'd done my full ordination ceremony and she had left. And I'm still in that meditation mo mode while she's here. And when she left, I she had went to a church while she was with me, um, a Catholic church. And I was like, maybe I should go to that church you went to. And she's like, are you sure you want to go to church? And I was like, well, you know, it was dad's last wish for me to go to church. Maybe I should honor that. And maybe I should go to church just once. I'm like, I'm meditating on this and I'm finding nothing. And she was like, think you should go he's like she's like it's a very good church so I went and when I went to that church I sat in the back little did I know that if you're a good Catholic you sit in the back I was just sitting in the back because I didn't want to mess up and have everybody see me mess up because I didn't know the you know Catholic calisthenics yet I didn't yep. know how to yep. do the exercises so I'm sitting in the back and while I'm sitting back there I see this it's over to the I'm sitting like this is me facing the altar and over here is this box to the right of me and I'm like what is that box and I can't stop looking over at this box that's over here by the altar it, I know now it to be the tabernacle and this church didn't have it behind the altar but it was off to the side it was still visible but off to the side but I was trying my best to pay attention, but I could not stop looking at this box. There's this box over here. What is that box? What is it? There is nothing miraculous or awesome about it. There's, it's not jeweled out or anything, but I cannot take my eyes off of it to save my life. What is that? I'm still watching. I'm still listening. I'm doing the up and down the best that I can. And right when they start bringing the preparation of the gifts they're bringing the gifts up i start feeling those people again and i think i'm having a nervous breakdown I'm like why am i feeling this again but they're not walking past me they're walking with the gifts and they're walking towards the altar and as they're walking towards the altar he goes over to this box and he takes out this the ciborium I didn't know what it was. I just thought it was a big cup. He dipped it over. He put it on the altar. And when he took out the host, I knew it was Jesus. I knew it was Jesus. There was no question about it. That was God. I knew it was Jesus. And we were all going to Calvary, to the promised land, to worship God at this altar for his sacrifice that he had made for us, for me, somebody who did not deserve an ounce of his love he gave, and then he gave us the Eucharist so we could always be there with him, always. I knew it. I knew that was what it, 
knew what, 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 I knew that was what it was. It was Jesus. And I went home and I wrote my dad on Facebook or my stepdad. I'm sorry. I don't want no offense to my real dad. I really, I love my dad. Me and him have a great relationship, but sometimes I do catch up calling my stepdad dad and I need to stop that. I'm sorry, dad. I don't mean to do that. But I wrote him on Facebook and of course he's gone. And I'm like, you know what, dad? I went to church. And I felt God. I knew what God was. I saw Jesus. I was, I saw what I was told when I was little. I was going to see God. I saw him today. And I was like, uh, so I, I said a prayer. I don't know what prayer it was, but I said it and I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to see you one day again. And I told him I loved him. Well, of course, my mom calls me up and she was like, is this real? Because you like to fake a lot. <laughs> you like to do a lot of messed up stuff. I'm like, no, mom, it's absolutely 100% true. It's like I saw Jesus today. I saw our God and I gave my heart to him. I saw him. I was like, I'm going to be Catholic. And she was like, well, that might be harder than what you think, son. <laughs> and I was like, well, I was like, okay. And she was like, but go talk to a priest. You need to talk to a priest right now. You have to go. And like, I'm like, I'm going to talk to a priest, I promise. So there was a Catholic church closer to me. So I went and talked to him. And when I talked to him, I was like, all right, so where do I sign up? How do I, you know, I'm telling you right now, I gave my heart to God. Where do I sign up? When do I get dunked into the river? And then when do I kind of start coming to church? And we, I start receiving this Eucharist that I keep hearing about the name for it. He's like, nobody, it don't work like that. He's like, you've got to go through RCIA, which is six to eight months. And like six to eight months. I'm like, I'm a recovering drug addict. <laughs> like you just said, like that might as well be forever from now. He's like, you know, we're going to walk hand in hand together uh, to get to that step. And of course, COVID hit. And then that pushed things back. But eventually, after going through uh, going through all the RCIA, I was confirmed into the Catholic Church uh, uh, Pentecost 2020. And um, yeah, and then I've just been blazing through ever since i can't get enough of the readings about the eucharist i can't i love the rosary which is also a thing too while i was going through my after the church phase before i went into uh actually going into rcia i told my mom i was going to pray the rosary as well and she was like well that's going to solidify you being a catholic when mama mary will get you you'll be catholic <laughs> And she was like, that's all there is to it. So so I love the rosary, and I'm a very, very, very big proponent of the Eucharist and the reverence for the Eucharist because I know I saw Christ. And no one could ever, and if they can, and now I understand like when I read about martyrs, I understand what they died for. Because you could kill me. I don't care. I'm never saying it's not Christ. That is Christ. I know it is. And that's been my story so far. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, um, yeah, I'm pretty darn near speechless here. I have to admit <laughs> that's, that's, 
that's too beautiful, man. And the fact that he uses every last mistake and all the confusion and all the abuse, all of that. And then you experience something that many are crying out for because they want to see, you know, they want to see their savior. They have the faith. They say, amen. Mm -hmm. But what you experienced and even what you described in the hospital or you said that was, I'm sorry, that wasn't at the hospital or it was with the hospice. hospice. Yeah, exactly. Like a crowd of people. Yeah. God is with you. And what else can I say? I, I don't even know where to take it from here. I don't, maybe, maybe I don't need to take it anywhere. Maybe, maybe we just sit with that. That is so miraculous. I don't even know. It's, it's too much. <laughs> it's too much. That's one of the reasons why too, I chose the name of my book as Mercy in the Details, because I always looked at it as the devil was in all my details. Satan was in everything, but really it was God's grace and mercy that saw me through and if it hadn't been for God's grace and mercy, the prayers of my mom and my stepdad and my dad and my stepmom had been for all the prayers that I received. I, if anybody deserves to be dead and in hell, it's me. I did everything I could in my life to injure God, to injure his people, to injure the love that he was trying to give to his people. I was the worst person ever. I do not deserve any of this. I didn't deserve to see that in the Eucharist. I did, I did not deserve it. And now that I have seen it, now that I know what it is, and knowing that I did not deserve to see it, I'm, ain't nobody ever going to take that away from me. And that's why whenever I go, I go to confession now every week, and, and no longer than every two, because I want to be able to go to that altar even with a little if, if if i have like a little bit of a venial sin if i don't even know if it's sin i confess it my confessor i'd probably make him pull his hair out he's probably got quite a few gray hairs because of me because i'm confessing everything i don't know <laughs> what not to confess i'm just like let me just tell you all this and because i know that when i go to christ i'm seeing christ he is there after the transubstantiation, he's there and he's going to come and be in me. I'm going to take his flesh into me, his body, his blood, his soul, his divinity. I don't want to stain there. I know my sins have stained me, but I know that he has forgiven me to the point where he can inhabit in my heart. And I want that to go out to everybody. Yeah. People who are Catholic now and just on the rails and don't know whether they want to or not, I tell them sit in adoration just sit in adoration right don't pray don't do nothing just right. look at that eucharist and say jesus i trust in you and i'm i swear i, I swear to you you will see something adoration, that's so true it's not like okay what do i pray what do i pray maybe just say jesus maybe just say jesus yeah i want i did think of something you know to to hear of a story where you're ping-ponging you know i'm, I'm going to check this out i'm going to check that out those those stories there are many of them mm -hmm. the skeptic says oh this is just one stop among many 
And first of all, uh, I would say absolutely not based on everything you just said. You found the truth. Second of all, every stop that you made, I feel this in the deepest part of my soul, every stop that you made will, if not already, will be impactful for the glory of God. Every stop. So the deepest, darkest day when you're just bawling your eyes out, you are crying out, not even knowing what you're saying, probably all of it. (laughs) He is the only one that can reverse all of these things, make them right. So I want to say, God bless you for your humility and um, your vulnerability, because that was like it's crazy how how heavy it is, how far down we went, and then yeah. only to only to come up, you know. So I mean, I wanted... it's, it's been a crazy journey, and I know I've had people say, you know, well, you've bounced around so much with different religions. This is just another of you. You know, you found something, you bounced to it. It'll be different in a few more years or so. Um, to that, I always say, I don't know the future. If I did, I'd play the lottery. Um, But what I do know is here and now, I trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I don't want my will to be done anymore, but his will to be done through me. And as long as I keep that mindset, I know I'll be all right. That's right. Stay close. And that's the message to everyone. Like, just because you have a conversion of heart and... Jesus is Lord, we must stay close. Mm -hmm. We must stay close. And I'm going to end there. And thank you again, David. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's a real blessing for me. And um, I pray for everyone that comes across this episode. And God bless you all. And um, please share this as well. Please share this. Until next time, take care and God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Catholic Recon. Please feel free to leave a comment. And remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen. To find out more about Eddie Trask, go to www.eddietrask.com. May God bless you.